In March 2003, an American B-2 stealth bomber, taking part in the opening attack on Baghdad, released a 2,000-pound bomb over Iraq's intelligence headquarters. The bomb hurtled thousands of feet to the earth, smashed through the building, destroyed the top floors, severed the water lines, and somehow bounced around until it buried itself several feet into the ground outside without actually going off. A few weeks later, after the U.S. Army successfully invaded Baghdad in the effort to topple Saddam Hussein, a unit of the Army's mobile exploration Team Alpha entered into the headquarters. Looking for critical intelligence related to the search for weapons of mass destruction, the team made its way into the basement, expecting to find reams of actionable information. Instead, they found a treasure trove of Jewish history. Tens of thousands of books, documents, and other materials were quickly rotting in the basement that, thanks to the 2,000-pound dud, had flooded but had not been blown up. The soldiers salvaged nearly all of the material, touching off a precarious preservation effort that continues to this day. It also sparked the beginning of a tug-of-war between the United States, Iraq, and the Iraqi Jews living in the United States that has important implications for American and Israeli foreign policy, international law, the philosophy of reparations and restitutions, and global questions over who owns historic cultural property. Like with the Schneerson collection from the second episode of this season, we know exactly where this archive is and who isn't giving it back. This time it's not Russia, it's the United States. So today's Unsolved Mystery is all about what should happen to what's become known as the Iraqi Jewish Archive. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So one of the reasons why I love Jewish history is that it squishes the sense of historic time so that events which happened a long, long time ago have a lot of relevance to what is happening today. Like, you wouldn't think there's much of a connection between the Babylonians sacking Jerusalem and the Americans bombing Baghdad. But for Jews, there is. So 2,500 years ago, in the year 586 BCE, the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, and everyone they didn't kill, pretty much, they forced into exile. And that began a 50-year era known as the Babylonian Captivity, and it was an incredibly productive time for the Jewish people. And just a couple of generations later, in the year 539, the Babylonian king Cyrus the Great, who set out a policy of more or less religious freedom, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their city and their temple. Many thousands of Jews went back, but many stayed. They stayed through the centuries of conquests and new kingdoms and competing empires and the spread of Islam. They stayed until, by the 20th century, the city of Baghdad was around one-third Jewish. It was a major center of Jewish cultural and intellectual life, an incredibly vibrant city with synagogues on every corner and over 100,000 Jews roaming the streets. And then, like a 2,000-pound bomb being dropped, it all came to an abrupt end. <laughs> In 1948, the Jewish state was declared, and in response, Iraq was one of the countries which invaded to destroy it. Immigration to Israel was outlawed, and those who left were often tried in abstentia and sentenced to death. Others were thrown in prison for even trying to leave. The Jewish community faced the kind of oppression and persecution that it had avoided for most of the last 2,500 years. 
1950, the Iraqi government passed a law that finally allowed Jews to immigrate to Israel, but at a steep price. They had to leave behind almost everything of value, from jewelry to cash, and were also restricted to traveling with just 66 pounds of luggage each. The Iraqi government claimed ownership of all the remaining property, like synagogues and everything inside of them, and seized it all for the state. In the next season of Jew I Don't Know, I'll be talking about the Israeli airlift of 1950 and 51 that brought tens of thousands of Jews out of Iraq. By the early 1950s, more than 120,000 Iraqi Jews had fled. Some thousands remained and still managed to hang on to a difficult life, struggling to navigate what had nearly overnight become an extremely anti-Semitic regime. And then, following the Arabs' humiliating loss against Israel in the 1967 Six-Day War, Iraq cracked down even further. Jews were arrested, imprisoned, and tortured. And then, in 1969, to great fanfare, nine Jews were publicly hanged in Baghdad for being spies. Nearly everyone who hadn't left yet did so over the next decade, and then the rest after the first Persian Gulf War in the 1990s. By the second Gulf War, in 2003, there were maybe 50 Jews left in Iraq. Today, the number is probably somewhere between 5 and 8. 2,500 years of Jewish life in Iraq was utterly gone. But not their stuff. The Iraqi government hoovered up all the Jewish property left behind. Everything from Torah scrolls to school report cards to Hebrew books to commentaries in the Talmud, contemporary records of people still living to relics hundreds of years old. Tens of thousands of items were unceremoniously stored in the basement of Iraq's intelligence headquarters, unseen, unused, and forgotten. And then came war, and the Americans, and the downfall of Saddam Hussein. In 2003, a former member of the Iraqi secret police passed a tip to the Iraqi opposition. The basement of the intelligence headquarters, he said, held something interesting. You guys might want to go check it out. The tip was forwarded to a Pentagon advisor, who also happened to be Jewish, and the mobile exploration team was assembled to search the building. That's when they discovered the trove molding away in the waterlogged basement, with a dud bomb sitting right nearby. The Pentagon official recognized what it was immediately. He and the soldiers dragged as many items as they could out into the sun to dry, including Torah scrolls. Among the finds were reams of ordinary documents, from school report cards to marriage and death certificates, but also included was a Hebrew Bible from 1568, a Babylonian Talmud from the 1700s, and a copy of the Zohar, a mystical text from 1815. A team from the U.S. National Archives was brought in to examine the find, and within just a couple of months, the U.S. government and the Coalition Provisional Authority, Iraq's temporary government, they agreed to have the archives sent to the United States for preservation. But the deal was that the material would all be returned to Iraq by 2014. That's where things get complicated. The Iraqi Jewish community in the United States, many of them refugees or immediate descendants of refugees, they declared that the archive and its thousands of materials belonged to them and should not be given back to Iraq. Iraq argues that the materials are an essential part of its cultural and historic heritage. To the extent that Saddam Hussein might have just dumped everything in a secret basement, well, it's a different country now and they want it back. In the meantime, the United States has poured millions of taxpayer dollars into rescuing and preserving the archive, and most of the materials are still too delicate to be sent back. So the question is what to do. Alright, now here's the problem. 
If we say that Iraq owns the archive, then we are legitimizing state persecution and the theft of cultural property. But if we say that the United States owns it, we are legitimizing broken international agreements, cultural appropriation, and a deeply problematic precedent that countries can simply claim ownership of materials that aren't theirs to begin with. And if we say that the Iraqi Jews own it, well, we're opening a Pandora's box of restitution issues. Okay, so hang on, let's go deep into international relations. So let's say we want to say that the Iraqi Jewish archive belongs to Iraq. The Jews were an essential part of Iraqi history going back centuries, millennia. Even though Saddam Hussein's regime decided to forsake that community, it remains a crucial part of Iraq's historic and cultural heritage. Numerous Iraqi officials have made clear that the Iraq which chose to get rid of its Jews is no longer the same country, and that its Jewish past is a crucial piece of what is today recognized as a rich and diverse history. Every Iraqi ambassador to the United States has emphasized that the archive represents an indelible part of the country's heritage, that the country is committed to re-establishing good relations with the Iraqi Jewish community, and that the archive will be protected, secure, and available. Iraq has promised to build a facility to house the archive in a way accessible to visitors. As the archive relates to the history of the Iraqi people, that material is by all rights the cultural property of the nation. And anyway, says Iraq, the agreement with the United States allowed the National Archives to digitize the entire archive, which they have, and it's nearly all online. So Iraq isn't looking to hide away the archives in some dark basement again, they say. They just want back the originals. I mean, it's not a terrible argument. I might argue that it ought to be encouraged. And shrugging off its decades of totalitarian rule, an element of which was anti-Semitic, it will be good for the Iraqi people to have in the country a stark reminder of their country's Jewish heritage and the huge cost that came with rejecting it. Honoring national diversity is a hallmark of enlightened and democratic countries. But of course, it can't be that neat because the archive was stolen by the Iraqi government. The Jews were persecuted, in some cases murdered, and hundreds of years of their cultural and communal property was forcibly seized by the Iraqi regime. That the materials had to be moved to the United States in order to save them provides us a convenient excuse not to return them. Instead, let's say the National Archives keeps them on behalf of the Iraqi Jewish community. I mean, that seems like a good compromise, yeah? The United States certainly wouldn't be the first Western country to appropriate native artifacts in the name of preservation. And therein lies the problem. The British Empire whisked away half of ancient Egypt, Greece, and Italy. Every museum in the world seems to have artifacts that don't belong to it. International restitution, the legal effort to return looted property, is immensely complicated and usually pits one country against another. Look how many decades it took to begin returning to the Jews artwork that had been stolen by the Nazis. And it's still an ongoing and controversial effort. So even though Iraq voluntarily gave the archive to the United States, which it considers its cultural and national property, it did so with the explicit agreement that it would get it back. 
For the United States government to now break that agreement and keep the materials, says Iraq, is the kind of cultural appropriation that hubristic Western imperialists have long used to drain valuable artifacts from Middle Eastern countries. I mean, they're not totally wrong. And it also sets a dangerous precedent that the United States is actually trying to work against. Well aware of this imperialist history of artifact looting, the United States has signed numerous agreements with other countries to prevent items of cultural significance from being imported into the United States. Like, take Syria. The civil war and the rise of ISIS meant that untold amounts of Syrian historical artifacts made their way out of the country, smuggled for private profit or to fund weapons purchases. It would be against United States law to, for example, bring into this country an artifact taken from a Syrian history museum. The goal is to prevent looting other countries' historic treasures. And that problem gets even more complex because some of those agreements that the United States signed explicitly mentioned Jewish artifacts amongst the materials considered nationally historic and that can't be brought into the United States. So where Iraq is claiming that the items its regime stole from the Jews is part of its national heritage, so too are other Middle Eastern countries that also persecuted their Jewish communities and drove them out in the 1950s. Which means that if the United States were to keep the Iraqi Jewish archive, it would, on the one hand, be claiming the right to seize Iraq's Jewish archive, while at the same time making it illegal to try to recover Jewish property from any other country that also claims that property as part of their cultural heritage. In effect, legitimizing their stealing of Jewish property, but not Iraq's. And if you're confused, you're in the right place, because I am too. And finally, just because bringing Russia into any American foreign policy situation is guaranteed to aggravate the hell out of everyone, Russia has made it clear that they are watching this situation closely. Remember the Schneerson collection from episode 2 of this season. Russia has said that if the United States is going to claim the Iraqi Jewish archive and not return it to Iraq, then Russia will see that as setting a precedent in which Russia doesn't need to return the Schneerson collection to Chabad in the United States. So the United States is in a bind. Because the archive is here in the U.S., but the U.S. can't really keep it, which leaves an obvious third-party candidate. Let's just give it back to the Iraqi-American Jewish community. If only it were that easy. establishment of Israel in 1948, a significant population transfer took place. 750,000 Palestinians left Israel one way or the other, most voluntarily but not necessarily willingly. Some were expelled. But in the ensuing years, somewhere between 850,000 and perhaps a million Jews were expelled from the Middle East and North Africa, from places like Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Yemen, and Iraq. In the 1950s, the Israeli government adopted a policy they called linkage. In an effort to bring the same level of global attention to the plight of the Middle East Jews as the Palestinian refugees, Israel basically said, hey, we'll compensate the Palestinians for their losses when the Arab countries compensate the Jews for theirs. Israel said that in considering restitution for Palestinian refugees, Israel would take into account the value of the property stolen from the Iraqi Jews and basically deduct the balance accordingly. Now, Lincoln never really went anywhere. Too many problems. 
There is a difficulty in assessing comparative values between Palestinian property in Israel versus Jewish property in a dozen other Middle Eastern and North African countries. Another is insisting that in the assessment of restitution, the Palestinians need to represent all those countries, while the Jewish exiles don't. In other words, a Palestinian has to theoretically take on deductions for Egypt, Algeria, Tunisia, Yemen, Iraq, and all the rest, while an Iraqi Jew gets deducted just for one entity, the Palestinians. Another problem is in the comparisons of property. Most of the value of what the Palestinians lost was in land, from which could, with difficulty, be extracted monetary value. But if you look at the Iraqi Jewish archive, for instance, it's hard to put a dollar figure on, say, school records from the early 1900s, or a Talmudic commentary from the 17th century, or thousands of Hebrew books, in addition to all the property. With the Israeli-Palestinian conflict already being what it is, who wants to add to that mess with something as complex as this? So now you've got a situation where Iraqi Jews in the United States say, give us back the property that Iraq stole from us. Iraq says, well, if we do that, what about the Palestinians? Israel should compensate them for their losses too. And Israel says, well, we'll consider that when all the Arab and North African states provide restitution for them expelling a million Jews. And the Arab and North African states say, hey, any Jewish material we stole in the past is actually a part of our national heritage now and can't be removed from our borders. And the United States says, ugh, yeah, I mean, we may have signed agreements to that effect probably. And Russia says, yes, you did, so we're going to keep the Schneerson collection too. And literally every other country around the world says, oh, this is interesting. So it used to be that we could loot other nations' cultural artifacts, but then we couldn't. But now maybe there are instances when we could again, but no one has agreed on what those are, so it's kind of everyone for themselves. And the United Nations says, hey, everybody, Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, to which all of you signed up, it provides for the right of all people to own property, individually and collectively, and for it not to be arbitrarily seized. So, you guys, and I say, my head hurts, because this gets so confusing. When In 2010, when I worked for a member of Congress, I was approached by a leading member of the Iraqi Jewish community, who asked for the congressman's help in securing the community's ownership of the Iraqi Jewish archive. At that point, the archive had been with the National Archives in the United States for about seven years, and was still too fragile to be moved. The agreement with Iraq was still in place, that when the archive was stable, it would be digitized and the originals sent back to Iraq. The Iraqi Jewish community wanted Congress to override the State Department, and instead transfer all the materials to the Jewish community. So, I got into it, I talked to the Iraqi Jewish community, I talked to the State Department, I talked to the National Archives, I wrote a lot of memos. The congressman and I sat down for a private meeting with the Iraqi ambassador to the United States, which I have to say was a very cool moment for me. I ended up drafting a congressional resolution, expressing the sense of Congress that all the relevant stakeholders should work together to reach an agreement regarding the disposition of the archive in a way that would ensure its security and accessibility. And that in the meantime, the archive ought to remain in the United States for continued preservation. Ultimately, however, as the Iraqi government and the Iraqi-American Jewish community were in the middle of a careful dialogue, we decided not to introduce the draft in Congress, so as not to rock the boat. Although the original agreement with Iraq called for the archive to be returned in 2014, Iraq allowed an extension until September of 2018. However, last summer, 
summer of 2018, a group of senators introduced a resolution urging the State Department to renegotiate the terms of the agreement in order to make sure that the archives are kept in a secure place, properly preserved, and accessible to scholars and to the Iraqi Jews and their descendants. At the same time, the resolution mentioned both that the United States was committed to upholding international law regarding cultural property and that the United States was likewise committed to ensuring justice for victims of religious persecution. As of this episode, June of 2019, the archive remains in the United States, and no firm agreement has been reached on its fate. Okay, very interesting. I hope, as always, you can go to my website, jewaudono.com, and there'll be a link to the page that's about today's episode where you can find more information. We'll see what happens. I'll try to remember to provide you all with an update if there's some movement later this year. In the meantime, next episode. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish community left tantalizing clues to a colossal treasure. Clues that remained undiscovered until the 1950s. Who were they? Where did they come from? And most importantly, obviously, where did they hide this treasure? We'll look into it. We'll hit the roads. See you later.